good morning and happy Sabbath. What a beautiful Sabbath today. What a privilege to be here, right? The book of Isaiah says that the Lord has a special blessing for those who worship Him on His day. You know, the Lord is, He provides rain and sunshine to every creature around the earth. But He does reserve a special blessing for those who worship Him on His Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. So may the Lord bless you all here today. It is a privilege to be back here and... Uh, Today is a special day, not only because it is the Sabbath, but because we have communion. And communion day is that day when we can renew and strengthen our commitment to the Lord. And also hear some encouraging testimonies, which I'm looking forward to. It is good to see you all here, to see some visitors. And uh, some of the visitors are actually soon to be members, so you are all welcome here. And we, we, we wish that this Sabbath experience may be a blessing to you as well. Before we study God's Word and before we open up the Scripture, let's pray that the Lord will guide us in this uh, study and that he, His Word may be proclaimed here. So as far as possible, join me as I kneel for prayer. Lord, it is never too much to pray and talk to you and we praise your name father because once again we we are here with a freedom to open up scripture and study your word and i ask father that you may hide me before the behind the the cross of christ that uh i may speak lord the words that you have designed that you have intended for us this morning that i may not speak over my own thoughts but i may share your word May your word be proclaimed here. May it make a difference in our lives. Bless each and every one of us here as we worship your name. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, three weeks ago, no, actually two weeks ago, uh, I was here and I said I was going to start a series of messages revolving around the central themes of the Protestant Reformation. As this year, 2017, we commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which was a very significant event. And the Protestant Reformation, the, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, uh, our movement came to be, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, as a result of what started right back there at the Reformation. And we talked about how the Bible was central at that time. How the Bible was central. And the Bible was actually the safe haven for those reformers. Because they had grown up. They had been taught that there was only one church. One church that could provide the way to heaven. And it was only through that church that they could have grace. There was only one channel on earth by which God could dispense grace to his believers. That's what they grew up learning and being taught. And once they, they departed from the main church at the time, they were not so certain whether or not they were going in the right direction. But the scripture provided the foundation for them and provided the security that they needed. Because when studying scripture and looking at what scripture said, they, they were reassured that they were on the right track. 
And so the Bible is foundational for every Christian. But not only the Bible is foundational, the Bible teaches us that there is one Redeemer, that there is one Savior, and it's only through Him that we can obtain salvation. It is what at the time of the Protestant Reformation, it is the principle that was called in Latin, solus Christus, or only Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone that can provide redemption. And this was a central theme in the Protestant Reformation. And you know that I'm never offended by amens, okay? Those who are saying amens quite timidly, you can say it louder. I don't know if we all understand what the, the concept of the indulgences was at the time during the Dark Ages. Uh, we usually say, well, indulgences were a means of people buying their way to heaven or buying their salvation. And in a sense, that is true. However, the, whole, the, the basic concept about indulgences was that uh, those people who died and that the Catholic Church would consider saints later on, would canonize, their merits would be virtually deposited into a bank, if you will, and then if when you paid your indulgences, when you bought indulgences, you would be actually withdrawing from that bank of merits so that you would still, you'd still be a sinner, but at least you would not have to be punished because of your sin. So whenever you committed a sin, you would buy, you'd pay an indulgence if you could afford it, and then you would still, uh, your sin would still be acknowledged, but you would, escape, you would escape punishment for that sin. Now, Martin Luther was totally opposed to that, because he said to begin with, the, the saints don't even have any merits to begin with. So how can you withdraw from a bank account that is is zero balance that doesn't exist and even if it existed it has zero balance because the saints had no merits as human beings there is even an episode where uh, a bishop who was too young to become a bishop he negotiated with the pope this was albert his name is a german name albert of hosen tolern and he negotiated with pope leo X who was the Pope at the time where Martin Luther affixed his 95 propositions at the, at the uh, cathedral there. And he negotiated with the Pope to buy some indulgences so he could have a second bishopric. And not only that, but he wanted to become an archbishop, even though he was too young for that. And so he, him and the Pope, they negotiated. The Pope wanted 12,000 whatever the currency was at the time. And Albert asked for 7,000 only. And eventually they agreed upon 10,000. And when Luther heard about it, he said, this is totally wrong. We are, we are negotiating, we're bargaining uh, the ministry of a priest in a location, in a locality, based on something that doesn't even exist, which is the merits of the saints. You know, Ellen White, in the book, The Desire of Ages, on page 300, he says this. She says this. The proud heart strives to earn salvation. But both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. 
So the saints had no merits. I could never withdraw from that bank of merits. I have no merits in myself. The only way to heaven, our title to it, and our fitness to heaven are found in the righteousness of Christ. And she goes on to say, The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until, listen to this, until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is, of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57 verse 5. So it's no wonder that Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the gospel can only be affected, be effective in the life of those who are spiritually poor and humble. It can only be effective to those who acknowledge their inability to be righteous on their own. Psalm 51, 16, 17. David says in Psalm 51, 16, 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise that. Now, David was a man who outwardly seemed righteous, right? He dressed right. He dressed in, in royal garments. He spoke with authority. He spoke in, in, in the name of the Lord. He was the king. And here is a man who conformed totally to the Mosaic laws, he followed them to the ladder. He offered the right sacrifices at the right time. And so on and so forth. But underneath that cloak of righteousness, of self-righteousness, there lay a heart that was a heart of stone. A mind that was simmering with envy, with lust, with covetousness. But finally... After being confronted by prophet Nathan, he realized, he acknowledged his sin. And realized the need to be broken. To come to God with a contrite heart. God speaking through Hosea, his prophet, he said, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So it is never about what we do. It is never about what we refrain from doing. But it's about what Jesus did and what he still does for you today. Does that make sense? I know that some of you may be twitching in your seats and thinking, Pastor, do you mean that our behavior doesn't matter because you just said it's only what Jesus did? Did you hear me say that? No, I didn't say that. And I'm not saying that. But I did say, and I repeat, that it's not about what you do. And it's not about what you refrain from doing that will make you acceptable 
before God's sight. But it's about what Jesus did and what he still does today. I'll talk about behavior later. But, but that's what the Bible teaches us. That it's all about what Jesus did and what he continues to do for us. So what should be the focus of our relationship with this Christ, with Jesus Christ? And I know many, many religious people whose focus is on their ability to live a, a life that we call uh, meritorious. A life that is outwardly perfect or as perfect as it could ever be. A life that apparently is full of virtue. A life that manifests certain qualities. Certain qualities that they believe are required of a Christian. And, they, they, though they, and then they focus on that. We need to display those qualities. We need to manifest those virtues. And again, someone might ask me, Pastor, are you saying then that Christians are to live just like anyone else? We're not to live a different life? A, 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 isn't supposed to be a change in our lives? I didn't say that either. But all I'm saying is that many people, many religious people have the mindset that because they are Christians, because they are Christians, they have to behave in a certain way. And so please follow me. Don't take from my words more than I'm saying. But the idea that because you're a Christian, you have to behave a certain way is not biblical. What the Bible teaches is that if you are a Christian, if you have been justified, you have been declared right in the sight of God, and you are a new creation, you are a new creature. That's what the Bible says. Romans 8, 1 says, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation, a new creature. That's what the Bible says. So, because you are a Christian, your life has experienced change. You have been justified. And because you've been justified, your life will never be the same if you really have come to Christ. And that transformation will be experienced over time in your life. So the Bible teaches that. The Bible doesn't teach that you have to behave a certain way. And if there was anyone who could behave nicely, behave perfectly, that would have been Paul. And we read here in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verses 5 through 7. That was part of our scripture reading this morning. Philippians Philippians chapter 3 and verses 5 through 7. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I am of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So what I said so far is no different from what Paul said here. Paul was saying that he had it all apparently right. He behaved rightly. He was zealous. As for the righteousness that comes from obeying the law, he was just blameless. No one could ever say Paul was not fulfilling that one commandment. 
He fulfilled them all. But once he came to know Christ, he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And so what I'm saying is that I believe the world needs more spiritual people than religious people. The world needs more spiritual Christians than religious Christians. And when I say that we need to be spiritual, is not in the sense that some people have, that when you are spiritual, it's all about your emotions. And I'm raptured by my emotions because I'm spiritual. And then if you are religious, then you are about reason. And you study the word and then you become religious. Well, neither concept is right. Because Jesus was with the Samaritan woman at the well. And the woman is saying, well, you Jews say that you have you want to worship here in Jerusalem, but we believe it's in, in Mount Gerizim. And Jesus said, ma'am, the time will come where you'll be worshiping neither here nor there. Because God is spirit and he's looking for worshipers, worshipers who will worship him in his spirit and truth. So being spiritual means having the truth, means abiding in the truth. The spiritual and spirituality and reason go together. They walk together all the time. But there is no value, there is no value in, in trying to demonstrate to anyone, nor to God, that you have some worth in you. Many people have a hard time identifying themselves as a sinner. They would want to, to skip this step when they, when they accept Jesus. If they could become saints already, incorruptible, they would have chosen that. And they have a hard time realizing that even after you accept Jesus, you are still a sinner. But while they live in that state of denial, there is nothing that the Lord can do for them. I just read this quotation here from the Desire of Ages. God can do nothing to toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency he yields himself to the control of God and so many religious people have a hard time in identifying themselves as sinners the temptation is to think that because you accepted Christ and you are now a member of the church now I must contribute, some, contribute something to my, to my righteousness But let me say this to you. There, there is only one Savior. There is only one Savior. There is nothing you could do ever to help in your salvation. There is only one Savior and He does not need any assistance. And His name is Jesus Christ. It is Christ and Christ only. I was giving a Bible study to someone uh, a while ago. And I was asked this question. Pastor who is the Antichrist? And because we had time, I gave a, a, a long answer and we went to scripture, we checked several verses. But you know, there is a passage in the book of, uh, in, in the first letter of John, 1 John chapter 2, where, where John talks about the Antichrist. And, and he says in one of the verses, I believe it's 1 John 2. 40, I, 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 I can't remember now, but, but John says, and in fact, there are many antichrists already out there. 
And so it's a warning for us. Because you might think that being an antichrist or being anti-Christian is just persecuting the Christians or just uh, being uh, prejudiced against them or not giving them, giving them the right opportunities. Well, that's being anti-Christian and maybe in a sense antichrist. But whenever we, whenever we try to do anything out of our own righteousness, I'm sorry to tell you that's being an antichrist because there is only one Savior. And I don't want to be an antichrist. Neither do you, right? We ought to re recognize that there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And He needs no assistance. His sacrifice was sufficient, was sufficient for all of us. Now when we understand the simple, the simple truth, it is a simple truth, but it's so profound. When we accept its validity for our lives, it takes a, a burden off our shoulders. We are able to experience tremendous sense of freedom and thankfulness. We immediately recognize but that it is not by what we do, it's not by how we perform that we are accepted by Him. Our acceptance is, in the t acceptance is independent of those things. And then when we recognize that, our heart full of gratitude will move us to look differently at others. We'll look at people with more mercy. We won't be finding fault in others. Because they practice their faith differently from we do. We'll not be comparing our good habits or how we dress or how we pray or how we speak compared to others. You know what's the greatest, the greatest, uh, the most impressive transformation you can see in a person? is when you compare the Christian today to himself, to themselves a while ago. It's not comparing one person to the other. But when you compare where you are today to where God brought you from, that's the most impressive transformation you could ever think about. So someone might still be asking, but pastor, many people say, once saved, always saved. So if you accept Christ, that's all that matters. And your behavior doesn't matter going forward then. Because Jesus did everything. Yes, Jesus did everything to provide for your salvation. But our behavior does matter. Because I'll tell you one thing. You may make it to heaven. But it could be that because of your behavior, someone will be prevented from making a solid decision for Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, I know that at the end of the day, the, the decision is personal. The choice is personal. Salvation is individual. The Lord comes to you and you res either respond uh, positively or you don't. Either you accept Christ or you don't. And at the end of the day, the decision is personal. But our behavior can impair someone from making a clear decision for Christ. And you may go to heaven, but that person won't. And it's, it's a sober thinking, thought. It's a, a difficult thing to grasp, but it's serious. That's, that's how serious uh, the problem of sin is. Let's open our Bibles here. And I'm, I'm going to be finishing with this. In the book of Titus. This small letter close to the end of the Bible. Titus chapter 2. 
Titus chapter 2. Well, verse 13 is, is well known. Verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to I wanna read the previous verses. And Paul gives counsel here. He writes to Titus, but asks him, asks him to, to encourage the people in the church to act soberly, to behave in a manner that is Christ-like. And I'm going to read this, but I don't want to give anyone the impression that Paul is saying you must behave in a certain way because Christians ought to behave outwardly like that. Because there is a key sentence here in this passage. But here's how a Christian should live. Verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. He's talking about behavior, right? Not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the work, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an, op an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Uh, I'm, I'm just stopping here. Apparently, he's talking about behaving rightly only. So, verse 9, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Doing what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So in verse 11, Paul is saying that this will all be made possible, 11 and 12, when the grace of God, which was manifested in Jesus Christ, which has appeared for the salvation of men, when this grace teaches you how to behave, when this grace leads you in the path of righteousness, and will teach you to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly lusts, and to live soberly and righteously, righteously looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how our behavior will be changed. When we open our hearts to Christ. And after being justified by Him and accepting Him. We allow His grace to teach us on a daily basis how we should behave. And we allow that grace to transform us day by day by day my prayer is like 
Paul said to the Philippians, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. May we all come to know him that way. May we all come to experience this knowledge of Jesus. And when we may feel that perhaps the gospel is not being effective in our lives. Let's remember that we must allow day by day the grace of Christ and his power to teach us and to transform us. So that we may follow him in every aspect of our lives. This only Savior that you and I have, He does expect us to live a life that is sober, a life that is changed and transformed, because He has all the provisions to do that. He has all the power. You just have to let Him do it. And today we are celebrating the, the ordinance that was instituted by Christ Himself. Christ was with his disciples uh, just not too many hours far from the, the moment where he was going to lay down his life. And he said that I have desired which much desire with earnest desire to have this meal with you. And Jesus took time to wash the feet of his disciples. And by doing that, that which was the work of a servant, he was teaching that we all must be servants to each other. That we all must be humble. We must humble ourselves and consider, esteem others above ourselves. And not only did Jesus wash the feet of the disciples, but he also partook of the, the Lord's Supper with them. And as we participate today, we are going to be eating of this unleavened bread. And we are going to be drinking of this unfermented uh, grape juice, which are emblems of the undefiled body of Christ and an emblem also of his blood which was shed for each one of us and so we encourage everyone who feels moved and called to participate that they do this today we are going to we're going to pray I'm going to pray now and we're going to be dismissed to go downstairs uh, the gentlemen will use this door here to exit to go downstairs for the foot washing. And the ladies will use the, the main entrance, the main doors. And then we'll take our time to have the foot washing downstairs. We'll sing together. We'll fellowship. We'll pray for each other. We'll take our time and then we'll come back. Uh, I, I try to preach a shorter sermon today. So we don't need to rush. We'll go downstairs. Then we come back for the the bread and the grape juice. Uh, I should say this, those who perhaps came here this morning not knowing that it was communion, I still encourage you to be with us and to stay with us. Because some testimonies will be shared when we come back, and I'm sure that somehow we'll be moved by that as well. So may God bless us all. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, participate now in the communion service, as we not only follow Christ's example to, to bow down, to kneel down before someone else and wash their feet, whatever shape their feet have, whatever color, whatever, Lord, we are here to serve one another. And so help us, Lord, to learn this lesson of humbleness.
that we may follow Christ's example in that. That by doing that, we may, we may become actually greater because we have followed our Savior. And then we, when we come back farther to participate in the communion, in the bread and grape juice, be with us still that we may take from this experience the most blessing, that we may leave this place filled with your Holy Spirit. I ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.